Hello, this is Jesse Weiler for Adoramus Bulletin. In this episode, I speak with Mariusz Bilinievich about his recent article titled Why Romans 12.1 is Ratzinger's Key to the Spirit and Truth of Worship. Mariusz currently serves as Director of the Liturgy Office in the Archdiocese of Sydney, Australia. And without further ado, another Adoramus interview. All right, uh, Marius, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Good. Well, I want to I wanna thank you for your time. And uh, this is such a wonderful article. I, I like anything on Pope Benedict and his uh, hermeneutic on liturgical spirituality. But this one is uh, something that I think I've heard before, but I never really thought to, to dive deeply into it. So the basis of this article is Romans 12.1, and it's, like you said, it's kind of like the template or the base of a lot of Benedict the Sixteenth spirituality, and he talks about it a lot. Uh, why Why is that? Can we just start right there. What, what is so core about this verse that uh, you want, that you said, hey, let's start here? I think that what Pope Benedict is trying to do there is to link the spiritual aspect of worship and the physical, material, uh, tangible aspect of worship. And that is a very, very difficult balance to um, to catch also in the Catholic theology, especially in the contemporary Catholic theology. So I think what he's trying to do there is, on the one hand, um, respond to those who say, well, since Jesus tells us that we're going to be worshipers in truth and in spirit, um, he wants to respond to spiritualizing tendencies which want to play down the material aspect of of the liturgy uh, but on the other hand he also wants to do justice to those various dimensions that um, we could say fall outside of the actual celebration of the eucharist the way that the eucharist spills out to everyday life and the way that it's um encourage us to um, get involved in social justice um, and in help of the others and um, and those other things. So I think Romans 12 uh, verse 1 gives him a good opportunity to um, to talk about that in a very intelligible way and also to link the idea of Christian worship with the pre-Christian ideas uh, that were present at the time. And um, one of the most important um, features of Ratzinger's theology generally, I think, is that he's trying to utilize as much as possible uh, the wisdom that originates outside of Christianity um, for the purpose of explaining uh, the Christian Christianity itself and the idea of logica latreia, the spiritual worship that uh, Greeks knew before the arrival of Christianity also gives that opportunity to him. Yeah. In the, in this section, you talk about how Ratzinger believes that in all religions, sacrifice is at the heart of worship. So this is, there's a very human element to this whole thing, right? So we're talking about the physical reality and the spiritual reality. Um, uh, I, I, I know how I think about this and how I've learned about it, but I'm curious as to your response. Why do we need both? Why, why can't we just have a physical, you know, sacrifice or just a spiritual sacrifice? Um, I think what Ratzinger is trying to do there is uh, is link the general experience of humankind that has and the intuitions that humans have always had with the Christian revelation uh, as we receive it. So, one of the most common um, themes in Ratzinger's theology that is being criticized by certain readers is that he 
um, devotes too much attention to pre-Christian ideas of liturgy of the liturgy, and that he wants to tap into the Old Testament realities of worship as well, and that he fails to realize how novel the New Testament idea of worship is, um, and that he. And there's a certain hermeneutics of discontinuity going on there as well. That um, there is a pre-Christian idea and there is the Christian idea, and they are very different to one another. Now, generally, when it comes to theology, um, Ratzinger would uh, sometimes uh, put himself into um, the kind of middle position that, uh, on the one hand, avoids drawing too close connections between pre-Christian pre-Christian ideas and um, and philosophies and uh, on the other hand with with the ideas that completely disconnect them now sometimes he would give the examples of Karl Rahner as a theologian a catholic theologian who goes a little bit too far or maybe even more than a little bit too far with regard to uh, universalizing the christian experience uh, but on the other hand he also doesn't like those ideas that he associates with the uh, Protestant theologian Karl Barth, who plays, uh, who puts a very strong emphasis on those discontinuities that the Christian worship is nothing like any other worship. So he's trying to marry both, and on the one hand, um, look at those intuitions that humankind has always had that we do have to have some sort of physical representation of what we want to do internally but obviously the internal aspect is uh, is the most important one so um i think he's just trying to do justice to to human nature but also to to, to the catholic teaching now one of the things that I think uh, would help his analysis would be to tap into the teaching of the Council of Trent who, in that section where it talks about the sacrifice of the mass as the human nature demands. Now, he doesn't make that clear connection, but I think it's somewhere there at the back of his head that it was very much the back of the head of the conciliar fathers at Trent that this idea of spiritual of physical representation of, of uh, spiritual realities and a very tangible one is there engraved in our nature and Christianity, like with all other things, doesn't erase it, but builds on it and perfects it, if you will. Well, it's very clear that there is a thread through, you know, from Old Testament and humanity about sacrifice and then how we how Christ came and showed and demonstrated this. Like we, we talk, you, you mentioned in your article, you know, we have... Um, an offering like an animal. And then we put that offering onto that animal, sacrifice the animal, and then we eat and consume that sacrifice. I mean, that's, that's the, the Christian, that's, that's a Catholic mass. That's what we're talking about here. And so it's not a, you know, mutually exclusive thing. It's a, it's a fulfillment of what is meant to be. So is that kind of, you know, uh, what you're talking about and making sure that both of those things are there? Yes, that's right. That's uh, that's what he's trying to do, I think, because again, in various Christian traditions, um, the idea is that well, we don't need to um, do that anymore, and that this that the sacrifice that we offer to God is our contrite heart and our good life that we lead. Um, outside of the liturgy as well. And that is precisely the spiritual worship that we are expected to offer to the Father. And therefore, all those Old Testament passages that talk about immolation and some sort of physical representation of that internal attitude uh, do not apply to us anymore. So there's a certain 
again, a certain hermeneutics of discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the way that the New Testament not only uh, fulfills the Old Testament, but brings the Old Testament to an end. So there's a question to what extent do the Old Testament realities continue in the Christian church and to what extent do they come to an end? Now, Ratzinger is obviously of the opinion that they that they continue. Um, this is very clear in the liturgy, for example, if you look at the pre-Vatican II Missal, there's a lot of readings from the Old Testament. There's only one reading normally during Mass, and most of them um, come from the Old Testament uh, and point to the fact that the New Testament uh, does not simply abrogate the old, but it fulfills it in the way uh, that those realities are carried on, even if transformed. Whereas, again, there are tendencies these days uh, also in the Catholic theology that see it otherwise and think that fulfillment doesn't mean continuation, but it means putting a stop to certain uh, ideas um, and realities, uh, such as priesthood, such as sacrifice, such as temple. Um, so I think the reason why he's trying to talk about it this way is to respond to those tendencies, because Ratzinger's theology generally is a very much a theology for today. He many times said that he did not produce an opus, like a whole theological system in which he would explain everything basically like other great theologians would try to, but he would try to respond to challenges that are posed today uh, for the contemporary people and contemporary problems. So uh, it's a little bit fragmented, he admits, but many consider that to be a strand of his theology. And one of those tendencies, again, is this this idea of this continuity between the old economy of worship and the new one. So uh, speaking of, you know, contemporary problems in, in liturgical thinking. You mentioned, uh, use the word representation or representation, which I think is often what people think is happening at mass. There's, this is a re uh, presentation of something instead of something that is anamnetic and in making real uh, what, what is, you know, continuing out throughout history. And so, you know, we're talking a little bit about that too. In, in this verse, it says, you know, uh, he, he wants us to, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That, that is heavily uh, uh, dipped in active participation rather than this passive thing where, you know, there's this, there's a sacrifice happening on the altar, something's happening there. And then, you know, maybe it's the real presence of Christ, but then I partake in that later. I, I'm, I participate after that thing has happened. That's not what, what, uh, is, what, what Paul's talking about here. And it's not what Benedict is talking about as well. Can you expand on that a little? Yes. Well, Ratzinger has a, uh, a quite elaborate theology of active participation and a lot could be, could be said about this, but yes, he makes it very clear in, in many writings that uh, the most important dimension of our participation in the liturgy is the is the internal participation which of course has to be also expressed externally but primarily it has to be an internal actual participation full and conscious participation and yes not only through reception of what is being enacted before us uh, in a in a kind of semi-passive way but uh, he analyzes the actual uh, expression active participation uh, 
that the way that it's used in the constitution on the sacred liturgy of Vatican II. And he asks the question, well, what is exactly the thing that we participate in? And he comes to the conclusion that if you want to, um, to, to talk about the very essence of that, it's actually the Eucharistic prayer that we are asked to actively participate in the Eucharistic prayer. Now, obviously the Eucharistic prayer is not something that we, uh, physically participate in, uh, in the way that we would respond, sing, or, or carry out some bodily gestures. So, uh, and yet at the same time, that's precisely the act in which we are asked to participate. So yes, this, uh, this taps in quite well to what Paul is talking about there. And it also taps quite well into the way Ratzinger, um, thinks about active participation, not only during the liturgy, but after the liturgy, what he thinks, uh, is often the case is that we, uh, think that our participation in the liturgy, both internal and external, is only limited to the actual celebration, whereas he says we continue to participate in the liturgy when in the real life after that we uh, also do what Paul asks us to do in Roman 12, and therefore our the liturgy spills over to everyday life and our participation in the liturgy spills over into everyday life when we offer our bodies as, as, as living sacrifice. So again, it's not a and an either or situation, but a both end situation where um, these material and spiritual realities interconnect and uh, and act together. Uh, going back into the beginning, you you talk about all these different translations and the essence and, and perspectives, and then towards the end of this article, you're talking about you know an aspect of this verse here is worship being reasonable, spiritual, and true. From from the from Benedict's perspective, why is that so important? Why are those three core things a part of this this verse here and essential to liturgical worship? Um, well, it's hard to say for me what why exactly that um, that would be so important to him. But I think this is just something that he sees in the internal logic of the text and in the internal logic of uh, of Christian worship as such. And I think it's more a case of reading what the text already says rather than trying to find in the text what he thinks should be there. Although it's always a temptation for any theologian to read things into, um, in, into text just to confirm what we the preconceived ideas that we've already had before we approach the text in the first place. But I think, I think his idea um, is, is that these are the core um, ways in which Christian worship should be, uh, should be understood. Uh, but I don't have any other answer to, to, to the question of why these three exactly. Sure. Uh, you mentioned earlier about his uh, about Benedict's interest in, you know, something like social regeneration and social justice and things like that. So what when we do this, when we have a, a, a right uh, understanding of this, when we have this reasonable, spiritual and true understanding of what's going on in, in our sacrifice and joined to Christ's sacrifice on the altar, what does that mean for society and social regeneration and and our communion with uh, you know the rest of humanity? Um, one of the things that Ratzinger's critics often bring up against his uh, theology of the liturgy or the Eucharist is that he has little interest in these areas. But I think that's not the case if you look carefully at his papal document, Sacramentum Caritatis, for example. He devotes the, the whole third part of the document to uh, the 
topic of Eucharist, uh, the, the mystery, a mystery that should be lived. Uh, the question here is, well, uh, how exactly does this societal change come about uh, with regard to, to the Christian participation in it? And Ratzinger is very strong, uh, not only in this aspect, but in other aspects of his theology on uh, the importance of the individual and the way that the world changes through primarily through personal conver conversion of individuals who then go out and transform the society. So he's always been very suspicious of um, emphasis on changing structures and policies and procedures and, um, and things like that, uh, because he always would think that political systems, regardless of um, how good they may be, can ultimately be only as good as the individuals that uh, that have that are in power really are. So, um, I think uh, what he's trying to uh, say here with regard to this sort of social justice uh, effect of the liturgy is that yes, uh, it inspires us as, as as individuals, but it also inspires us as the church, as the community. But ultimately, there is no uh, other way to transform the world into being a better place rather than by starting from oneself and applying in in the world outside of the liturgy celebrated in the in the church those principles that that we celebrate yeah it's this it's this uh divinization this process of divinization high and low and you know uh layers on top of layers on top of layers of, of participation and growing and continuing to be to be sanctified uh, so I, I, you know, that's something that definitely fascinates me about how all of this ends up making an impact on the real world and how we can provide an encounter of Christ through ourselves being, being Christ's life for the world as well. So, um, this is uh, this is such a wonderful article. I really appreciate it. I, I love the breakdown here, and I think uh, the next time I'm reading through Romans, I'm definitely going to have a new lens by which uh, I, I'm looking through this. And it's it's funny. A lot of this language does make itself into the mass, but this you know specific verse is is something that I don't hear outside of you know reading the scriptures itself. So it's always nice to hear. Oh, maybe there's a piece that uh, should be in there, or could have been in there that they decided, no, well, that's not going to be in there. So, um, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, what a great article. We, we hope to read more stuff from you in the future. Thank you very much for having me, Jesse, and for your kind invitation. Absolutely. Okay. God bless.